Thank you for listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We're now continuing with Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the completion, the fulfillment of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Well, most of my shows have to do specifically with the continuation of Judaism into the Catholic Church or the transformation of Judaism into Catholicism, but I've gone on on a little bit of a different kick the last show, and it's going on, continuing on to this show, which is, uh, I'll make a little personal digression, but my background before my conversion was in science, and I am indignant as a convert to the Catholic faith that um, the world out there thinks somehow it's unscientific to believe in the Catholic faith. That is a violation of reason, and you have a choice between um, between uh, basically being rational or having faith. And yeah, which is really, really offensive because it's the opposite. In fact, um, one has a choice between being rational and realizing that God must exist. And in fact, looking at the miracles that are specific to the Catholic Church and thinking that they probably indicate that the Catholic Church is all for real. Um, Or you can choose to be very unrational, irrational, and simply refuse to believe and make up excuses for all of the evidence that's before our eyes that lead us to believe in the truth of the Catholic faith. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, a very wonderful apologist uh, of the first half of the 20th century, has the following quote, I am asked, when I am asked as a purely intellectual question, why I believe in the Catholic faith, I can only answer I believe in it quite rationally upon the evidence. Now, uh, in the last show, I talked about the evidence provided by life itself, that in fact, um, evolution evolution uh, doesn't really make sense, doesn't make sense at all. And it's far more rational to believe in something other than evolution, in fact, to believe in God and creation. Uh, I will give another quote. I wasn't planning to give a quote, but a, a very notable French Catholic, Francois Mauriac, again, of the middle of the 20th century. He was he was a, a Nobel Prize winner in literature and a member of the Académie Française and so forth. Uh, when he listened to a lecture on evolution, his response was, what this professor says is far more incredible than what we poor Christians believe. And that was the topic of my previous show, my last show on Radio Maria, uh, which was actually two weeks ago. And so I want to continue in that vein. And I want to talk about one of the incredibly beautiful uh, miracle stories, which left behind physical proof um, in, uh, that we have in the Catholic Church, which is Our Lady of Guadalupe. So that's what I was going to spend today's show on. And I have a feeling that you will indulge me on that because it's such a beautiful, beautiful story. And it also does leave us with a physical, verifiable proof that's quite specific to Catholic Church in the form of the tilma itself. So perhaps I'll do this show backwards. And before I tell the story of the appearance of Our Lady of Guadalupe to Juan Diego, and all of the very, very beautiful things that she told him, and by extension told us. It's a very appropriate way to celebrate Our Lady on Our Lady's Day, Saturday. Um, I will do this backwards and just say why I'm doing this. In other words, how overwhelming the physical proof that she left behind was, which is the tilma itself. So before I get into the details of the story, the very bare bones of the story is that Juan Diego, a Indian Mexican peasant, the year is 1531. He was 57 or 58 years old. He had become a fervent Catholic. And um, 
he had an encounter with the Blessed Virgin Mary. I will go into the details after I, I give this the bare bones story of the Tilma. And um, he, he had an encounter, an apparition of Our Lady. She asked him to have a chapel built on the spot. Uh, he went to the bishop to ask for a chapel to be built there. The bishop uh, was actually very kindly, but was not going to do anything like that without proof. So Juan Diego went back to the Blessed Virgin Mary, said the bishop wants proof. Blessed Virgin Mary said, when you come back tomorrow, I'll have the proof for you. And what she did was she had, this is in the middle of winter, and the bishop was from Castile in Spain, and she had a rose bush blossoming fully with Castilian roses for Juan Diego the next day. And he cut the roses and he wrapped them up in his tilma, which is a cactus cloth uh, cloak. Uh, very coarse weave like burlap out of this very rough cactus fiber, which he was using as a cloak, and he wrapped up the roses in it. And he took them to the bishop. And when the cloak opened up, the roses were there, but there was also a miraculously produced image of the Blessed Virgin Mary on that tilma, on that cloak. And that image is Our Lady of Guadalupe. In other words, Juan Diego's cloak from 1531 was kept there ever since. It's now on display in a basilica there. It's the very same cloak, the very same image. It's now almost 500 years later. It's 491 years later, or 89 years later. And the tilma, the cloak, is there in perfect condition. The painting is there in perfect condition. And the fact that that cloak itself survived for 490 years. That fact that it survived for 15 years actually is a miracle. So let me just talk a little bit about the physical characteristics of that image and of that cloak to simply get past the miracle part of the show. And then I can get onto the very beautiful account itself of our Blessed Virgin Mary. So you see this show is actually combining two things. It's combining more uh, scientific evidence, so to speak, to believe in the Catholic faith with some very beautiful devotional considerations about our Blessed Mother. So anyway, just on to the cloak. Um, as I said, it was, on, it was on that very rough uh, cactus cloth. Now, it, uh, it was... The event happened in 1531, and about 200 years later, a scientist, a doctor, who didn't believe in this, you know, was a skeptic, and he wanted to prove that it was all fraudulent, he had some copies made on the same kind of fabric. In other words, he had woven some other, um, it's actually maguey fiber, that's a particular kind of cactus, maguey fiber fiber tilmas woven and he had images painted on them and he placed them in the same place where the real tilma was placed he placed them in in other spots in the building and in nearby buildings so that they would have the same atmospheric conditions that the tilma had and his intention was to prove that this cactus cloth in fact can last a couple of hundred years well after seven years they were disintegrating the colors had changed and deteriorated. The paint and gold work were falling off of the tilmas, and the fibers themselves were disintegrating. And that was after only seven years. And at that time, the tilmas were already, the tilma, the real tilma, was already 250 years old. Um, in uh, 1936, a German chemist, who actually later won a Nobel Prize in chemistry, analyzed a fiber from the tilma, and found that the coloring, the paint on the tilma, was neither animal, vegetable, nor mineral. Let that sink in a moment. It wasn't animal, it wasn't vegetable, it wasn't mineral. It doesn't leave anything. The only thing it leaves is synthetic dyes, which didn't exist until uh, after 1850. So they didn't exist for uh, over 300 years after the tilma existed. So there's no explanation for what that paint is. Um, and furthermore, the backside of the tilma 
is still that very rough burlap-like weave, but the front side of the tilma where the image is, is a perfectly smooth surface, even though there's no, it's called sizing on it, there's no treatment, there's no coating that was put on the fabric to give, give it a smooth surface, uh, much less a smooth surface to hold paint. So it's all totally inexplicable, miraculous. Um, there's also a total lack of apparent brush strokes in the image. Um, and um, there are two other events that show miraculous qualities of the tilma itself. One is that in 1778, a workman was cleaning the silver frame and with nitric acid, and he spilled a substantial amount of nitric acid on the tilma. Now, if this was a thousand years earlier, he probably would have fallen on his sword. Imagine the poor man thinking that he had undoubtedly just destroyed the most precious religious object, icon, um, in, in all of Mexico by spilling nitric acid on it. Uh, but in fact, miraculously, the tilma was not damaged by the nitric acid. In fact, there's a very small stain um, in the uh, upper right corner that remains as evidence of the nitric acid, but the tilma itself was not damaged. And then in 1924, I think it was, it was in the early 1920s, um, there was a there, uh, there was a revolution. This is actually another show's topic, potentially. But uh, uh, Mexico, obviously, from the, the Aztecs, you know, it belonged to the Aztecs and Mayans. The um, conquistadors came, the Spanish missionaries came, converted it to Catholicism, largely through the uh, Blessed Virgin Mary's apparition at Guadalupe and the Tilma of Guadalupe. It became a very Catholic country, and there was a very violent uh, Masonic anti-clerical, anti-Catholic church revolution in Mexico that ran from about 1910 into the 19 early, early 1920s. Very violent. As a matter of fact, priests were slaughtered. Actually, it was really, really horrible. Um, it was basically against the law to be a priest, against the law to administer the sacraments, Many, many priests were killed and persecuted and religious. It was against the law to wear religious garb or priestly vestments, masses. It was, it was like um, uh, England uh, after the Protestant Reformation under Elizabeth, the suppression of the church. It was that bad. Uh, some of you may know of uh, St. Miguel Pro, who was a very, he was actually a Jesuit priest who was martyred. He was a young man. He was in his 20s. But he returned to Mexico to make the sacraments available to people. And, of course, he was eventually caught and found out and, and, uh, and martyred. Um, but anyway, so it's in those times. It's in the time after the success of the Masonic Revolution. But the, the Mexicans themselves, most of them, still had their Catholic faith. They still venerated the Tilma of Guadalupe, uh, you know, the, the icon of Guadalupe, and, and it was a huge pilgrimage site. It's, by the way, the largest pilgrimage site in the world now. I think it gets 20 million pilgrims a year. But anyway, uh, one of these uh, Masonic, atheist, Marxist, anti-Catholics decided to blow up the Tilma, and he placed, uh, he pretended, he placed a, a vase of roses in front of the tilma. It was still relatively accessible in, that, in those days with 27 sticks of dynamite, 27 sticks of dynamite in that vase. Um, maybe it was 15 feet in front of the tilma itself. Uh, anyway, the dynamite exploded. The marble altar was completely demolished. The marble steps were demolished. There was a heavy uh, brass or bronze crucifix in front of the tilma that bent over, you can see it there actually in the Basilica now, it's bent way over from the blast. The uh, windows of buildings, you know, within 200, 300 yards, much less the windows within the Basilica were blown out, but the tilma was undamaged also. So, so the existence of the tilma of Guadalupe is miraculous in a way somewhat analogously to the uh, Shroud of Turin. It is a 
miraculously produced image that has been miraculously preserved and is scientifically inexplicable, both how it was created, in other words, how it was painted, what the coloring is, and so forth, but in this case also the fact that the fabric itself is, did not dissolve into dust in the course of 500 or 490 years. So with that, um, I talk too much because I prefer to just let the Blessed Virgin Mary talk. So let me read this very beautiful account of the um, apparition of the Blessed Virgin Mary to Juan Diego. I think many of you may know that the feast day of Our Lady of Guadalupe is December 12th, because that's the day of the final apparition when, when um, the Blessed Virgin Mary provided those roses to Juan Diego. The first apparition was four days earlier, or three days earlier, was December 9th, which is now, now that Juan Diego is, I don't remember whether he's a blessed or a saint, um, but anyway, it's his feast day, December 9th. So, let me start with December 9th, 1531. Here goes. The first apparition. Juan Diego awoke before sunrise. It was Saturday, Our Lady's Day, the 9th of December, the first day in the octave of the Immaculate Conception, 1531, cold in the mountains of Mexico at that time of year. Wrapping his cloak or tilma about him, Juan set out alone from his new home to the neighboring village of Platiloco, six miles south. He was on his way to Mass, which he had faithfully attended every Saturday and Sunday since his conversion six years earlier. It was a long journey for anyone to make two days in a row. That's 24 miles of walking, and his aging limbs were beginning to feel the toll. The trip seemed so much longer since his wife had died two years earlier. Now he walked the road alone. But being alone had its advantages. It gave him time to think about and talk to God. The good friars had taught him well how to do that. It was still pre-dawn as he approached Tepeyac Hill. Here, not so long ago, stood the gory temple of the Aztec's mother goddess. It was just a memory now, as were all their false deities. But Juan's thoughts were elsewhere as he shuffled along on his way to Mass. The kind fathers expected him to know his catechism lesson, and these eternal truths preoccupied his mind. Suddenly his thoughts were interrupted by music, very wonderful music, descending from the top of the hill. It sounded like a mellifluous chirping of sweetly singing birds, a melody such as he had never heard. The tones began to grow more enchanting and filled the air around him, so enrapturing his soul that he began to doubt whether it was possible for a man in this fragile life to relish such exquisite harmony and remain in the flesh. Is it I, he wondered, who has this good fortune? Or perhaps I am only dreaming. Where am I? Um, the ravished Indian squinted his eyes to scan the hilltop, when, to his astonishment, a cloud glowing with whiteness disappeared just above the crest, while a magnificent rainbow formed by its resplendent rays emblazoned everything around it. Then, abruptly, the celestial singing ceased. A voice was heard from within the cloud. It was the voice of a young woman, a tender voice, calling his name most affectionately Juanito, Juan Dieguito, uh, a diminutive, you know, like my little Juan. Our Lady spoke to her humble protege in his own Nahatul tongue. In that language, the form of address used by the woman had a significance more intimate than any expression English or Spanish could convey. It was an endearing expression, reverently diminutive, that a fond mother would use for her child. English would render it, Dear Little Juan. That same voice beckons each of us with an identical tone of affection. If only more men would open their hearts to hear the call, what joy it would bring into their lives. Totally perplexed, the 57-year-old Juanito clambered up the rocky incline to see who it was who so sweetly addressed him. As he reached the summit, the voice bade him draw near. Doing so, he found himself face to face 
with a woman of incomparable loveliness, whom he described simply as a most beautiful lady. Her garment shone so brilliantly that the entire mountain was transformed by the reflection of her glory. The rocks became as precious gold, the earth sparkled like emeralds and multicolored jewels, even the shrubs and prickly pears were splattered with a sheet of color, as though their thorns had been changed into stained glass. She was young, perhaps fourteen, her expression most affable and encouraging. He motioned Juan to come closer. Advancing a step or two, he sank to his knees, overwhelmed by the loveliness of the vision. The lady spoke, My son, Juan Diego, whom I tenderly love as a little one and weak, where are you going? He replied, My holy one, my lady, my mistress, I am on my way to your house at Tlatelolco. I go in pursuit of the holy things which our priests teach us. His holy one, the noble lady, then revealed her will, saying, Know, my son, my much-beloved, that I am the ever-Virgin Mary, mother of the true God, who is the author of life, the creator of all things, the Lord of heaven and earth, present everywhere. And it is my wish that here there be raised to me a temple in which, as a loving mother to you and those like you, I shall show my tender clemency and the compassion I feel for the natives and for those who love and seek me, for all who implore my protection, who call on me in their labors and afflictions, and in which I shall hear their weeping and their supplications, that I may give them consolation and relief. That my will may have its effect, you must go to the city of Mexico and to the palace of the bishop who resides there. Tell him that I have sent you, and that I wish a temple to be raised to me in this place. You shall report what you have seen and heard, and be assured that I will repay what you do for me in the charge I give you, for I will make you great and renowned. Now you have heard, son, my wish, go in peace. Use all of the strength that you are able to. Juan bowed low in humble obeisance and said, I go, I go, my most noble lady and mistress, to do as a humble servant what you have ordered. Farewell. After Juan had spoken to Our Lady, he straightway set out on his mission as a most obedient son and took the road leading directly to Mexico. Juan never paused to weigh the pros and cons of his own insufficiency. He just did what was commanded, and he acted promptly any obstacles he would face when and where they came. I will just point out one thing before going on that moved me when I uh, read this in preparation a day or two ago. The Blessed Virgin Mary was so understanding and so well understands our situation and is so loving and generous that notice what she said to her. She gives him his mission and then she says, be assured that I will repay what you do for me. Be assured that I will repay you for what you do for me. I mean, I, I just want to stop there. Just imagine this is heaven asking us to do something. And it's not enough that they ask us to do it, but they reassure us that anything we do for them will be repaid Pouring over in over generosity, repaid a hundredfold, right? Jesus said, I forgot what the exact words. What did he say? Everything you give up, uh, even in this life, I will repay you a hundredfold, never mind in eternal life. So, you know, we, we, we don't even need this, right? I mean, we should do it without any repayment in prospect. But we cannot possibly do anything for God for which we will not be repaid, frankly, far more than a hundredfold, because we will be repaid in this life, and we will be repaid for all eternity, for the slightest little thing that we do of value in the eyes of heaven. And so the Blessed Virgin Mary, when she appeared to this, you know, impoverished, ignorant, lonely, widowed, humble, little Indian man 
entrusted him with an important mission and reassured him that don't worry, you'll be well repaid for it. I just think that's so beautiful the way she the way she condescends to us. Anyway, uh, on to um, continuing the um, the story. Her message was beautiful and simple. She told him that she wanted a church to be built in her honor on this hill where she would receive and compassionately console all her suffering children. For this purpose, she sent Juan Diego to the Bishop of Mexico, the Franciscan Dom Juan de Zamoraga, to present to him her request. So, um, let me skip to there when they um, when he appears before before the bishop. Okay, so he makes it to Mexico, Mexico City, and he he goes to the bishop's palace, the bishop's house, with his urgent message. And Juan, the humble Indian, knelt down as a sign of reverence before the bishop. Both men were fully aware of their nothingness before God, but this token of reverence, the bishop accepted. The person of whom, of him whom his priesthood represented, our Lord Jesus Christ. After Bishop Zamoraga greeted him courteously, Juan suppressed his nervousness and related all the wonderful things that had happened, repeating the message of the lady exactly as he remembered it. To all this, the prudent shepherd listened most kindly without giving any signs of credence. Then the bishop asked Juan various questions, all of which he answered perfectly. However, the bishop would need more time to check out the Indian's character, and perhaps also the prelate was wondering if this were not some trick of the devil. Deeply saddened by the obvious skepticism of the illustrious bishop, Juan rose to his feet, bowed, and took his leave. When he came to Tepeyac, the hill where he had come across the Blessed Virgin Mary, he found the beautiful lady just as glorious as before, waiting for him at the summit. Kneeling before her, he painfully acknowledged his failure. O oh, little one, most dear, my queen and most high lady, I did what you told me. Though for a long time I was not let into the bishop, I finally saw him and gave him your message just as you ordered me. He listened to me with kindness and attention, but from what I noticed in him and from his questions, I gathered that he did not believe me, for he told me to come again that he might at leisure inquire into my affair and examine it more closely. He supposed that the temple you demanded was an imagination or whim of mine and not your will. I therefore beg of you to send some noble and influential person, someone worthy of respect, to whom credit ought to be given, for you see, O oh my sovereign, that I am a poor serf, a mere lowly peasant, and that I am not fit for this embassy of yours. Forgive, O queen, my boldness, if I have at all failed in the respect due to your greatness. Far be it from me to incur your indignation or to displease you by my reply. Looking upon him with the greatest affection, the noble lady smiled tenderly and said, Hear, much-loved son, and understand that I am not without clients and servants to send, for I have many that I might employ if I wished, many that would do whatever they were ordered, but it much befits that thou undertake this affair and conduct it. My wish and desire has to be accomplished by thy means. So I ask thee, my son, and I order thee to go back in the morning and see and speak to the bishop again. Tell him to erect for me the temple I demand, and say that she who sent you is the Virgin Mary, mother of the true God. At these words, renewed vigor and confidence poured into Juan's heart, he answered, My lady and my child, I will not cause you affliction. I will gladly go to accomplish your will. I will not cease from striving, so tomorrow afternoon when the sun is setting, I will come to give you a report concerning the reception of your message. With this assurance, let me take leave of you, my little daughter, my child, and my lady. Rest quietly in the meantime, until I come again. So the weary ambassador went home, cooked his supper, and without mentioning anything to his uncle with whom he was now living, he went to bed. 
The next day, Sunday, Juan went to Mass and religious instruction and afterwards set down the road for a second encounter with the bishop. Okay, so now we're on December 10th. We're on the next day. We're on Sunday. And um, Sunday, Juan Diego gets up, he goes to Mass, and then he heads off for the bishop again to give the bishop the Blessed Virgin Mary's reply to the bishop's initial reply. So with that, we've come to the halfway of the show, and uh, we usually stop for a short musical break, which we're about to do now. And you'll see what I have chosen for the music. I think it's very appropriate for the subject of today's show. And just before I go into the music, let me remind you, this is a live call-in show. The number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Again, 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. And uh, if you call during the break, I will immediately, coming out of the break, look at the call board. And if there are any calls, uh, take them. Um, and then go back to reading this account of the apparition uh, of the Blessed Virgin Mary to Juan Diego and Guadalupe almost 500 years ago, from which we get the patroness of the Americas, the patroness of the United States, the patroness of North America, of the United States, our patroness, uh, the Virgin of Guadalupe. So with that, let's go to our musical break. You're listening to Roy Showman on Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. Now for the break. So I will continue with the account of the apparition of the Blessed Virgin Mary that resulted in the devotion that we have to the Virgin of Guadalupe, our patroness of North America, and of course, uh, the all of the devotion that is that she receives uh, through the miraculously produced uh, image of uh, Virgin of Guadalupe that remained on Juan Diego's tilma. So, back to the story. We're now on Sunday afternoon. Juan Diego, on Saturday, had his first encounter with the Blessed Virgin Mary. She told him to visit the bishop. He visited the bishop Saturday afternoon. The bishop was kindly, but did not take him very seriously. He went back to the Blessed Virgin Mary at the end of the day and said, you'll have to pick someone out else, someone who's more important and will be taken more seriously. The Blessed Virgin Mary said, no, it's you I chose for this. It has to be you. Go back to him tomorrow and tell him that I am the Blessed Virgin Mary, the mother of the true God, and I want a, a temple built for me on this spot. So the next day, it's now Sunday, Juan Diego went to Mass in the morning, and now he goes back to the bishop's palace in the afternoon, and that's where we pick up the story. Um, so in the afternoon, he found himself standing again in front of the Episcopal Palace and knocking at the gate, but this time he was treated much more harshly than the day before. But with his persistent pleading, he wore down their resistance and was again allowed into the courtyard. Once inside, he was told to sit down and wait. He waited and waited and waited, drawing his tilma tightly about him, for it was very cold. One, two, three hours elapsed, and finally his name was called out. The bishop would see him. The man of God, having no idea that Juan had been kept waiting so long, was quite surprised to see the Indian back so soon and received him with his habitual courtesy. Instantly, Juan dropped to his knees and told the prelate that he had again seen and spoken to the Mother of God, and that she had demanded that the bishop build her the desired church. Then, overcome by his own nervous intensity, the tears started down his cheeks as he implored his lordship to heed the noble lady's request. The bishop was embarrassed at this passionate display, and urged him to gain composure and answer his questions. What did the lady look like? Who did she say she was? Where did she appear? On and on the bishop went. He needed proof that she was indeed who she said she was, and not some illusion of the devil. They must have a sign, he told Juan. Such an expensive and laborious undertaking as the construction of a church requires much more evidence that it is truly the mother of God who asks for it. What kind of sign? Juan asked. Name any sign at all, and I will ask it of the lady. 
The bishop paused for a moment and said, Let the lady herself decide it. And after that, Juan was dismissed. Losing no time, Juan Diego hurried straight for Tepayac Hill to inform his mistress of the outcome of his second meeting. Prostrating himself before his heavenly queen, with great anguish he poured out his heart. No one had believed him, though he had tried his utmost to convince them. Only a sign would move the bishop to act upon the lady's request. So as a last gesture to please his queen, he asked her if she would not give him some sign. Then he would surely succeed in fulfilling her desire. The beautiful lady, in tones of deepest appreciation of gent- and gentleness, thanked her childlike emissary for his efforts. She then promised to give him the necessary sign, saying, So be it, my son. Return here tomorrow, in order that you may secure for the bishop the sign for which he has asked. When this is in your possession, he will believe you. He will no longer doubt your word and suspect your good faith. Be assured that I shall reward you for all you have undergone. Go now, tomorrow I shall await you here again. And Our Lady sweetly added, Do not forget me. I mean, this is unbearably sweet. I mean, again, that condescension. She literally added, do not forget me. That's also because she knew the future, so I'll go on with the future. So here's the situation. Juan Diego was living with his uncle, and um, his uncle had been sick, but now he was at death's door. And um, so this is now Sunday night. He returned home to his uncle. His uncle is on, almost on the point of dying uh, Juan was beside himself with, with grief. His uncle was the only one he had left. His wife had already died. All that night and all the next day, he sat by his uncle's bedside to minister to him, to nurse him, and give him any alleviation he could. So that is Monday, so he doesn't go back to the Blessed Virgin Mary on Monday like he said he was going to, to get the sign because he was nursing his uncle. Surely, Juan thought, the Holy Virgin would understand why he was unable to keep his appointment that afternoon, as he had promised. Soon the sick man became aware that he was not going to recover, and informing his nephew that his time to quit this world was fast approaching, he asked him to leave the next morning for Tlatelolco and bring back a priest that he might confess and be anointed. So that's how Monday passed, and now it's uh, Tuesday morning, or and his uncle is asking him to go straight to the nearby town where the friars are and fetch a priest to give his uncle last rites. Of course, Juan Diego knew that he had just um, been a no-show for his uh, appointment the previous day with the Blessed Virgin Mary. So, resuming the story here, this is now December 12th. Very early before sunrise, Juan Diego hustled off on his way to find a priest. It was now Tuesday, the 12th of December. As he drew near the hill where he had spoken to Our Lady, he could not afford to be detained at this time. He had not a moment to lose or his uncle might die without a priest. So he decided to skirt the hill on his opposite side, a much more difficult path, in his hopes of avoiding a confrontation. He thought to slip unseen by the eyes of her who sees all. Alas, how many times have we not made the same mistake? But as he passed by the hilltop, he could scarcely believe what his eyes beheld. For up ahead of him he saw the Holy Virgin in a blaze of light, gliding effortlessly down the slope on an angle so as to intercept him. So much for trying to escape the gaze of the Blessed Virgin Mary. My dear little one, she called to him, where are you going? What road is this that you are taking? Juan was overcome with shame. As uh, as has been noted, he failed her. She had not failed him. Since she he had not sought her on the heights, she sought him in the depths. Utterly confused and at a loss for an explanation, Juan Diego spontaneously resorted to pleasantries. My daughter, my dear little one, God keep you, lady. Did you sleep well? And how is your health? Then quickly regaining his presence of mind, Juan spoke more soberly about his uncle's sickness and his need to go get a priest. When he finished speaking, there was a pause. He looked up to see the lovely woman smiling most affectionately upon him. 
With supreme gentleness and compassion, she replied, and these words should reverberate from the walls of every church, every home, every school in Christendom, quote, Listen, and let it penetrate your heart, my dear little son. Do not be troubled or weighed down with grief. Do not fear any illness or vexation, anxiety or pain. Am I not here who is your mother? Are you not under my shadow and protection? Am I not your fountain of life? Are you not held in the folds of my mantle, in the crossing of my arms? Is there anything else you need? She again paused, gazing upon him, and continued, Do not let this illness of your uncle worry you, because he is not going to die of his sickness. At this very moment he is cured. As we meditate these words addressed to us through Juan Diego, let us have tremendous confidence in Mary. Remember that she has a heart, though immaculate, nonetheless human, that burns to save souls, pleads over our transgressions, and compassionates our sufferings. She knows what it is to suffer because she suffered. She suffered deeply and she suffered silently. As it is in the nature of a mother to desire to put herself in the place of a suffering child and to grieve even more than the one afflicted, so it is the nature of our mother Mary to feel the same compassion, though more intensely, for all her spiritual children. Back to the story. After these soothing words of encouragement, Our Lady ordered Juan to climb up the hill, and there at the top he would find the sign the bishop needed. Go, my son, to the summit of the hill. There you will find a large variety of flowers. Gather them carefully and assemble them, then bring them here. Not stopping to ask how this could be, for it was well into winter and all the foliage had died, the ambassador, trusting completely in his lady's word, hurried up the slope. And lo and behold, over the crest, he saw a brilliant a panoply of the most exquisite flowers, including Castilian roses, blossoming in the frozen soil. Juan was struck with amazement. Now the bishop would surely believe him. Then, as he had been directed, he carefully gathered as many of them as he could fit into his outstretched tilma and brought them down to show to his queen. She then took the flowers and with her own hands rearranged them, as only a woman can, saying as she did so, My little son, these varied flowers are the sign which you are to take to the bishop. Tell him in my name that in them he will recognize my will, and that he must fulfill it. Then she sent her emissary on his way, but first cautioned him not to allow anyone to see what he carried until he was before the bishop. Arriving at the palace with his precious burden, Juan politely asked once again to see the bishop. This time the servants angrily rushed out on him, threatening to drive him away, but Juan wouldn't budge. Courageously he stood his ground, they heaped all kinds of insults upon him, and they clanged the gate shut in his face. There was no way, they told him, that he was going to see the bishop. Juan pleaded that this time the bishop would have to believe him. They had to let him in, but they laughed him to scorn. However, he just kept at it, and uh, eventually, eventually, um, uh, they... Actually, I'll just go on with the story because I can't summarize it successfully. Okay, he kept at it. Finally, one of the officials that was keeping him out noticed that Juan Diego was concealing something under his cloak, and he approached and asked what it was. Juan wouldn't answer. The man got very angry, threatening him to force him out, and Juan drew back and inadvertently let the attendant see a glimpse of the flowers. And they could not believe what they saw, so at that point, the attendant rushed to the bishop's quarters to report the phenomenon. And at this point, the bishop, this was the first time that the bishop was informed that Juan Diego was there. He, the bishop wasn't the one who was being rude, but his attendants were. So when the bishop was informed, he immediately told his attendants to bring Juan Diego in at once. Um, he, uh, the Juan Diego entered. Uh, all very nervous, uh, standing, not kneeling, because he didn't want to lose hold of his tilma. He recounted before the listeners the entire story of what had happened at Tepeyac, 
how the lady had promised a sign, how she had told him to climb the hill, where he would find many flowers growing, how he had gathered them in the tilma, how she had then rearranged them in the tilma with her own hand, telling him to take them to the bishop so that he might at last believe her message and fulfill her desire. And anyway, having finished the story, Juan took a deep breath and um, gripping the tilma, clutching it to his bosom, he said, Your Excellency, here's the sign that you asked for. Opening his hands, the tilma fell, and from it a heavenly bouquet of multicolored blooms, mingled with Castilian roses, cascaded softly to the floor before the startled dignitaries and perfumed the room with a heavenly aroma. However, that was not the only miracle that happened. As the bishop lifted his eyes from the prodigy on the floor, there suddenly appeared on the Indian's tilma an image of the Blessed Virgin Mary in resplendent glory. The wooden floor resounded with the thump of bended knees as both dignitaries knelt in adoration. The mayor of uh, Mexico City happened to be visiting the bishop at the time, so it was both the bishop and the mayor. Both dignitaries knelt in adoration uh, with their eyes riveted on the tilma as if contemplating an apparition. Juan felt uneasy as he perceived that their gaze was no longer on the flowers but on him. Looking down upon his garment, he saw the object of their veneration. It was she, the Holy Mother of the True God, just as he had seen her on the hill. For a long time, no words were spoken. Anyway, that's really, that's really, um, that's really almost it. At that point, of course, the, um, the uh, bishop was totally won over. He, uh, let me, let me turn to that. Um, after Juan Diego had told the Bishop Zamoraga the exact spot where the woman wanted the church built, construction of a temporary edifice got underway immediately, and in just two weeks' time, a handsome little chapel of worthy architecture was completed, and the sacred image was carried in triumphal procession from the city to its new home. And, um... Anyway, so that was the beginning of the Shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Um, Juan Diego was moved onto the site to be sort of the caretaker, and he lived out his life there. There's still actually inside the church. The church is kind of built around it. There's the little remains of the little hut that he lived at. And that is really the story of the origin of the Tilma of Guadalupe and the Shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Um, and uh, there were lots of other miracles, but let me just cut to the chase. Now, the Franciscans had been there, the, the missionaries had been in Mexico for some quite some time at that point. They had not been very successful in converting the Indians. Uh, I don't know how long they had been there, 20 years, 30 years. There were about 1 million Indians converted. Within 10 years after the apparitions, because of the influence of the Tilma, and the apparition of Our Lady of Guadalupe, there were 10 million Indians who had been converted from paganism to Catholicism. Before Our Lady's coming, there had been only 1 million natives converted, and within 10 years after her visit, there were 10 million uh, natives converted. And a uh, missionary at the time recounts the following, Had I not witnessed it with my own eyes, I should not venture to report it, I have to affirm that another priest and myself baptized in five days 14,200 and odd souls. Five days, he and another priest had baptized over 14,000 Indians. Um, they literally came in tears begging the fathers for baptism. And um, there are other accounts of incidents where when the friars would enter a village, they would be accosted by the whole village, essentially pleading in tears to be baptized, to be made Christians. So that brought about the conversion of Mexico to the... Anyway, that's the story. Wow, and I almost finished in time. So I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I did want to talk about the physical, scientifically inexplicable, so to speak, or uh, miracle of the Tilma of Guadalupe, but I didn't want to do that 
without telling the beautiful story behind it, which and the point of the whole story, because, of course, the point of miracles, you know, isn't just to impress our skeptical friends. It is to bring about conversion of our skeptical friends. And in this case of uh, the entire country of Mexico or 10 million Indians. And uh, that's still the point of the miracle. So please don't be shy. We're in this pseudoscientific age. Everybody wants proof. Nobody wants to believe without proof. We have the proof. We have the proof. Don't hide it under a bushel basket. Don't keep it hidden. Uh, Share the proofs with your friends when appropriate. The Shroud of Turin, the Tilma of Guadalupe, the Medical Miracles at Lourdes, um, uh, and so forth and so on. The Eucharistic Miracles. Let them know that um, uh, oh, do I have the quote in front of me? Uh, let me see if I can pull up the quote quickly, fast enough. Um, of uh, G.K. Chesterton, the believers in miracles accept them rightly or wrongly because they have evidence for them. The disbelievers in miracles deny them rightly or wrongly because they have a doctrine against them. We are the ones with the evidence. Again, back to Chesterton. If it comes to human testimony, there is a choking cataract of human testimony in favor of the supernatural. If you reject it, it can only mean that um, uh, if you reject it, it can only mean one of two things. You either deny the testimony of ordinary people or you affirm the main principle of materialism, the abstract impossibility of a miracle. You have a perfect right to do so, but in that case, you are the dogmatist. It is we Christians who accept all the actual evidence. It is you rationalists who refuse actual evidence, being constrained to do so by your dogma, by your creed. So, with that, let me uh, close out the show. I'll go back to the hymn that I played in the middle of the break, and I'm sure that'll fade into the transition into the next show. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. With me, your host, Roy Shulman. Please join us again next week. Same time, same place. Bye for now.